Hello, everybody. Welcome to Politics and the Humanities. This is a podcast from American University. Uh, we care about uh, books. We care about the humanities. We care about politics and we care about ideas. I'm here with my colleague, Sarah Marsh. Sarah, why don't you say hello? Hey, folks. Thanks for joining us. Uh, I, I am Tom Merrill. I'm a, a faculty member in the Department of Government. We're joined today by my colleague uh, and dear friend, uh, Borden Flanagan, who is also a faculty member in the Department of Government. Um, he's also a mainstay of the Political Theory Institute, which is run by our colleague, Alan Levine, um, which all of you should go out and check out our website online. Um, I think I can say that uh, Borden is a much beloved teacher um, to many people uh, who've come through AU, and so I'm, we're just really happy to have him with us today. Um, Borden is a scholar of Thucydides. Um, he's been studying and teaching Thucydides um, I was going to say for a long time, but uh, that's uh, maybe not the right way to say it. Um, he's an expert. How about we just say that? Um, and he's here today to talk to us about uh, Thucydides' discussion of the plague, which is one of the memorable incidents in Thucydides' book, History of the War of the Peloponnesian War. Um, and I guess we should just say to begin um, why we're doing this. Uh, why are we doing this, Sarah? So we thought it would be uh, instructive to think about a narrative of a plague uh, from history uh, because we're living through one now. And one of the things that uh, the humanities allow us to do is reflect on human circumstances other than our own. And in this sense, Thucydides offers some perspective on, on what we're living through now. And, and Borden's going to help us understand uh, that kind of perspective. Right. Yeah. So, and and I think we're especially interested in how does this help us think um, in the in the way that liberal education asks asks us to think about the whole human experience. Right. Nothing human is alien to me, including some pretty gross things that happen in the plague. Which, Gordon, um, you're an expert on this. I'm an expert on gross things. Uh, I'm also an expert on uh, the, the plague. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I'm not an ex I'm not a. Uh, I don't have a background in, in medical history. I'm, I'm not an expert on, on plagues, but it's um, uh, it's one of two places in the book where Thucydides interjects himself. So Thucydides is a very reticent writer. Uh, everybody who reads Thucydides comes away uh, impressed by how careful a writer he is and uh, how profound his account is. But it's not profound because he says, "I Thucydides think X, Y, or Z." He lets you. He really makes the reader an audience to uh, the events of the war. And he frames those events so carefully that you can't help but think about some very deep issues. And it's hard not to see the way this plague hits Athens and the way that it uh, uh, disrupts uh, their, their private and their public lives so thoroughly. And not really be faced with some salient questions, questions that are salient at all times and places. Uh, given the raging mortality, it, uh, it raises the question of, what will our deaths mean? What will our lives mean uh, as individuals and as a community? And uh, one of the ways in which I think this is salient uh, for us now is that it's uh, conspicuous in the plague that uh, the Athenians' relationship to time is altered. Uh, everybody in the city thinks they're going to die in a matter of days, and so society collapses as a result. And so uh, the time frame issue is, is quietly placed uh, uh, in a prominent way. And I think that affects 
um, I think that's that's relevant to how we've been affected by COVID ourselves. We're all kind of sitting around in lockdown, wondering what to do, and so we've been disconnected from our our normal understanding of how how things happen and uh, how our, our our time is is uh, going to play out. So. Um, so it's a it's a profound piece. It's one of two uh, places in the in the whole history where Thucydides kind of makes himself prominent. He comes in and, and he refers to uh, the importance of the events he's about to relay um, in exposing something that's permanent or something that's going to recur. I should say. Um, he says, "I'm going to record these events of, of the plague so that people will recognize it in the future." Um, and so just the fact that he kind of steps out from behind the curtain and shows himself uh, lends importance. He, he rarely does that. And so when he does, we know that it's a particularly uh, philosophically important uh, scene. So, Borden, you went pretty deep pretty quickly. And, oh. and, I, and I have to say, I mean, perhaps some of our viewers or listeners might say, you darn political theorists, you're always trying to get me to ask, what's the meaning of my life? Right, yeah. and after a while, I just get a, a headache. Yeah. Um, can we back? So I want to. I want to. I want to talk about all the things that you just said. But can we? Can we back up and and just tell the story? Um, yep. And I and I, in rereading this, so I, I did in, in preparation. I, I don't fly blind, Borden. Uh, I, I did prepare for this. I, I went back and, and was reading the context. Um, the plague comes right after another part of Thucydides that's even more famous. Correct. Right. So. Um, uh, the play, uh, you want me to go through the uh, the funeral oration and the, the the play? Yeah, can we just? Uh, it seems it seems that the plague is clearly a, a kind of commentary on the funeral oration. Uh, perhaps even Thucydides is subtweeting the funeral oration or offering silent commentary on it. Can can you just just tell us, remind us what's going on with the funeral oration, and then and then we remind us what happens? Absolutely. So, uh, in the first year of the war between Athens and Sparta. Uh, which is a cataclysmic war. It, it, it takes 27 years, this war. Um, and it, it develops from seemingly unimportant events into this gigantic catastrophe for Greece. Uh, but at this point, um, we're only a year in, and uh, not very many people have, have fallen. But every year they had, uh, um, every year there's a war, the city holds a funeral oration where they hold a, a collective funeral for everyone who's died in the war at that time. And uh, but somebody prominent gives a speech and Pericles is the leader of Athens uh, um, without question, the most powerful and most prominent and most respected statesman in Athens at this time. Um, and so he gives a, a speech um, over the, the ashes of the fallen and, um, uh, and this is kind of a remarkable setting. Um, he, the speech and all such speeches, all such speeches are not just about praising those who've fallen uh, and, and justifying their sacrifice, but also justifying the same sacrifice from the living. Um, Pericles needs to persuade the Athenians that they need to keep fighting. Um, and so he has to reconcile people to the possibility of, of them giving their lives for the community. Um, 
and and just by the way, this is maybe the front door problem to political theory. How do you reconcile the individual good to the to the common good? How do you justify people giving something up? Not just giving up something small like taxes uh, uh, or big like taxes, uh, uh, but you know something major, uh, uh, some sacrifice to the common good. Uh, and in the context of war, you're giving up everything. You're giving up your your lives. Um, so. Uh, in any case, so he has to do this. Uh, the traditional way, by the way, that people did this is by making speeches about uh, protecting the family, uh, protecting the gods of the city, protecting the homeland. Um, all these traditional ways subordinate the individual to the to the community, um, and and their appeals to sentiment. Um, and Sparta is maybe the fo- most famous example of of the subordination of the individual to the common, um, where if you're a Spartan, uh, in a very important sense, you're not an individual. You're you're a brick in the larger uh, structure that is the, the regimes and laws of Sparta. Um, uh, Pericles, in this speech, he tries to unite the individual and the common good, and he argues that both are satisfied uh, by devotion to the city. And the way he does this is kind of remarkable. Most of the speech is a speech about virtue um, and eudaimonistic virtue. Um, so uh, eudaimonia is this Greek word for flourishing. Um, it's virtue as a kind of excellence. Um, and so what he argues is that devotion to the city brings out the best in, in the individual and uh, participation in the civic project uh, constitutes flourishing. Now, Athens, the civic project of Athens is empire. It's got a vast naval empire. Um, uh, and and um, a lot of what that civic project involves is putting down people who are putting down cities that are trying to revolt from the empire. So it's, it's, uh, it's a very warlike understanding of flourishing. Uh, the problem, of course, with an account of, of citizenship uh, that offers flourishing is that dying puts a hamper on flourishing. So the second part of this pitch is glory. Um, devoting yourself to Athens uh, uh, means fighting for Athens, and if fighting for Athens leads to your death, that death uh, offers you immortality. And so one of the uh, most remarkable parts of the speech is the way that he says that die for Athens and you will be immortalized. Everyone will remember you forever. Um, So you've got two things that are, I think, in our context, especially striking. Um, The politics, you know, in in Pericles' account, and it's really kind of a founding is what he's doing. He's giving an account of what it means for Athens to be Athens, and what, it, what does it mean to be an Athenian? What does your life mean uh, as an Athenian? Um, and in Pericles' account, it's not about the economy. It's not about security. Um, it's about, first, it's about the, the fullest flourishing as a human being. And then it's about overcoming death somehow. Uh, politics is about transcendence, transcending your mortal limits. Um, now, the plague utterly destroys... Both projects, um, uh, 
but before that, happens, we'll, we'll, we'll wait for a second. Do, do we, Sarah, do we want to ask any questions about the funeral oration? I do. Yes. Yeah, so my the question about the funeral oration, Borden, is fr from my perspective is um, does the empire have a relationship to the Athenians understanding of the plague, right? So is there the sense that um, the plague has come to Athens because of the imperial project, or is that not a connection that would have been like available to, to Pericles or to Thucydides? Oh yeah. I mean, so one thing that happens after uh, the plague is that the Athenians during the plague, the Athenians are, um, one of the things that's really interesting that I want to get into is that the Athenians stop propitiating the gods. They stop obeying uh, the religious laws and the religious ceremonies um, because they see that the pious and the impious die at the same rate. Um, but they continue to believe in a religious, under, a religious interpretation of, of the plague. They think that the plague is a divine punishment. And... Uh, after the speech, they're kind of looking around for something to blame, and they blame Pericles, um, not for the empire. They don't think it's a punishment for the empire. They think it's a punishment for Pericles' obdurate response to Spartan demands. There have been some quarrels between Athens and Sparta leading up to the war, and uh, Pericles has taken a hard stand um, against any kind of concessions uh, to the Spartans. Um, and although he's, there's a treaty between Athens and Sparta before the war, um, the Athenians take some actions that puts a, put a real strain on that, that treaty, but they stay within the letter of the law. Um, but nevertheless, the Spartans respond with war. Um, and so the Athenians come to blame Pericles as the cause of the war and therefore the cause of uh, divine sanction in the form of the plague. Um, so... They don't actually, they're not drawn so far as, as believing that their empire is unjust, but they, they do think that, that Pericles' particularly aggressive uh, defense of the empire caused the war. And so they think, aha, that's what did it. The thing is that, you know, he's still, he's such a brilliant speaker and he's so clearly head and shoulders above everybody else uh, in terms of um, understanding what to do, explaining it well, and, and being patriotic. But they don't, they don't get rid of him. They just fine him. So they, they kick him out of office briefly. Then they, they bring him back in and uh, they make him pay a fine. And that kind of satisfies their, their anger. But in terms of imperial self-understanding, um, they've, you know, not everyone. Uh, it's clear in the very last speech um, that, that we have in Thucydides and Pericles that, that Pericles... There, there are people that are critical of, of the war in the empire, but they can be dismissed out of hand. Most of the Athenians are on board. Go empire. So, Borden, I thought you were going to say to Sarah's, because Sarah's question could be interpreted in a moral way, or is this a punishment for the empire? But I, isn't the obvious answer, yeah, of course it's connected with the empire, because they're, they're, it's like globalization. You, you're having commerce and sending ships over the world. And so, you know, he says that it comes from Egypt um, and it comes to the port, right? It's uh, so this is what happens when you go out and have relations with many different peoples, you get diseases, right? Right. I mean, yeah. this is the, the sort of like the pedestrian, I mean, apart from all the highfalutin, you know, stuff. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I'm sorry. Uh, it's not clear to what extent the Athenians, I mean, they, at first they worried that the Spartans had poisoned their cisterns, um, uh, but there's not a lot in Thucydides that suggests that um, they understood that it was, it was commerce that, that brought them in. But yeah, no, you've got this far-flung empire, and it, it comes in via the trade routes. And uh, so, right. If only, if only Pericles had. Uh, what's this like? This is what Trump his like big point that he's happy about himself is that he blocked the uh, the ports from China, right? Which seems, I guess, is absurd and you know way overblown. But uh, that that's the isn't that the sort of the underlying practical issue? Yeah. No, Thucydides, um, I think, is it puts you in a position to see. Uh, okay, this is this is what's happening because it comes from Ethiopia and then it comes from across uh, the, the Mediterranean. Um, and it doesn't really happen in the Peloponnese. You've got these these farmers in the Peloponnese that don't have a lot of commerce with the people outside the Peloponnese, and they're pretty safe. Um, so yeah, no, it's uh, uh, it's 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 clear that Thucydides understands uh, kind of the, the the vectors of contagion, but whether the Athenians do, it's it's not so clear. And can I ask about the just before we leave? You know, the, the talk about the funeral oration, because I mean, you spent a lot of time talking about the the glory part, right? As a kind of recompense for people who are going to die for the city, um, even though there's almost like there's nobody named in this narrative who's died for the city yet, right? Right. <laughs> there's something that that sort of like a theoretical, almost a theoretical exercise. But the funny thing to me in rereading the funeral oration, he spends much more time talking about, well this is good because it forces us, it's like the greatest competition. He's like the ultimate meritocrat um, that you get to uh, show off your virtue. And the the claim, the core claim is really that we Athenians deserve to rule the world. Right. (laughs) Right. It's not like a bashful, you know, um, we're improving things, um, but that we we're just superior. Um, Yeah. No, I mean, it's remarkable. Go ahead. Well, okay, so I was going to talk about uh, his claims in the funeration. Um, he makes a claim about the, the regime, the democracy, that it's a meritocracy, and it's very interesting there. I mean, he's not an egalitarian. The reason he likes a democracy is that it suppresses class advantages for the sake of natural advantages. He thinks that democracy brings out natural inequality, the best rise to the top, which, of course, is nice to say if you're Pericles and you're at the top. Right. Um, he well, also, that's what we say in America today, right? That's right. Yeah, clearly the best rise to the top in, in, in the American meritocracy. Every everybody believes that. So uh, there was gear quotes uh, around that to listeners yeah. to. Yeah. Well, um, so but Pericles also makes the same claim about the empire that uh, he says that nobody complains about being conquered by us. Uh, <laughs> they uh, they all know that that we're the best. And uh, so it's like losing to Michael Jordan, right? Exactly. You know, it was an honor to play it. Right, right. Yeah, which is kind of, I mean, it's just a, an amazing statement. Um, uh, as we, I mean, Thucydides makes clear there's plenty of complaining, actually, that goes on. But um, yeah, so, so Pericles makes this claim that, that it's, um, you know, the, the regime is meritocratic, but also the empire is meritocratic. And this is both stage and spur to Athenian virtue. Because your virtue can be enacted on this world stage and be rewarded uh, in the grandest possible way, that uh, uh, the whole project, uh, domestic and foreign, um, is a meritocracy that that reveals virtue and and brings it out. Um, And the three virtues that he, he highlights, I mean, he says, Athens is the school of Hellas. Everybody can learn from us. 
Uh, it's a kind of it's a universal model that he puts forward, and so he puts forward three virtues, and also he emphasizes that these virtues are natural. Those Spartans, they just have virtue beaten into them, and so it's purely conventional. It doesn't really show a, a, a real human flourishing. That, that here in Athens we get real human flourishing according to human nature. Really, the best in human nature is brought out by the democracy and by the empire. And uh, there are three virtues uh, that I just want to run through quickly. One is kind of easy courage, um, easy-minded eagerness for battle that involves a total overcoming of, a, of fear of death. He calls it rathumia, which is a word in the Greek for uh, kind of lightheartedness. Um, uh, it means easy flowing. Um, uh, and he says, we, we gladly conquer people defending their homes. I mean, it's amazing. Uh, he, he really sets it into the imperial context. It's not scary. It's, it's not we're defending our homes. It's we gladly rush into battle and defeat people defending uh, their homes. Uh, so it's explicitly imperial. The second is uh, daring combined with deliberation, that we alone charge into dangerous situations really fully knowing the, the, the extent of the risk. Um, and we deliberate um, in this kind of daring way that we face the harsh truths that we need to face to do this. Um, so there's a way that daring is implicit in, in deliberation because you need to be daring to really face the, the tough things you need to face to deliberate, but also deliberation is implicit in daring because if you're really daring, then you're, you're not anesthetized by ignorance, you're really facing, uh, the, the, the scariness, uh, of the situation. Um, so, uh, that's the second. And then, uh, the third is, and the summary one is, uh, this Greek word autarkes, which means uh, self-sufficiency, sort of equal to every challenge. Uh, that the Athenians are are kind of this poise at the center of the storm of, of imperial war. Um, all these things are happening, uh, and uh, uh, the, the Athenians have this kind of perfect, total mastery of themselves and of contingency. And and all so it's important. Can I ask? Yeah. Is, is Pericles a change maker for a changing world? Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> uh, right. Um, he, Maybe we should provide some context. That's that's our motto at American University. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. But right. Uh, AU's empire. Well, so um, yeah. I mean, in a way, Athens is is the cause of all change uh, in in the Periclean understanding that that Athens is is the universal necessity that forces everybody else to fall in line. And they're just kind of this overflowing uh, fountain of power and conquest. Um, and all three of these virtues are explicitly warlike. Uh, empire really is the, the, the spurring stage for it. Um, uh, and then, but you know, death, it's, it's tough to be flourishing when you're dead. And so that's why he, uh, uh, he also has to, and the, the last third of the speech is about uh, immortal glory. Um, and the thing that's really amazing about this claim, he doesn't just say that Athens itself is, in, you know, would be, be remembered forever. Um, each individual soldier, he says, will be remembered forever. And I think, I mean, Tom, you really put your finger on something important. There's a, and this is kind of how Thucydides works. Thucydides doesn't record a, the name of a single fallen soldier. Uh, and in fact, no name is recorded. I mean, these, these public uh, funerals didn't involve the recording of any individual names. So 
Pericles makes this claim and just quietly, no, everybody else sinks into uh, oblivion. Um, but I want to I read a little passage from Thucydides that, where Pericles makes this claim about joy. Um, uh, for those of you reading along at home with your pocket, Thucydides is, uh, that's a joke. Thucydides is gigantic. It wouldn't fit in anything. Um, this is chapter 40, excuse me, chapter 42. I keep it in my man purse, Gordon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's Sorry. Uh, uh, this is uh, 42, section 4, towards the end. This is sort of the last couple of clauses. Um, so this is Pericles talking about the following. And he says, This thing you meant fighting and suffering rather than surviving through surrender. They fled only the stigma of dishonor and stood their ground with body in the field of action. And so in the fortune of a single moment at a climax of glory, not of fear, they passed away. So he gives a picture of, of uh, the dying Athenian soldier taking a stand against dishonor uh, and dying in, in this climactic moment of glory. And so he continues. It's just like a movie, right? There's, there's no suffering. They don't, they don't uh, agonize. They don't say, oh, crap, what have I done with my life? Yeah, exactly. The, the, there's no pain. There's no suffering. He mentions uh, death only once in the whole speech, and that's to call it unfelt. Um, it's a very kind of high-minded speech. It's all about glory and virtue, and the actual suffering on the battlefield is is minimized. Here you have this, this one brief moment, uh, and uh, what happens in that moment? They're transformed into immortal glory, that a person becomes uh, uh, a, a memory. Um, uh, a, a, an eternal reputation. Uh, and so this is later, this is section 43, uh, uh, chapter 43, section 2. He says, They gave their lives to the common cause and so gained for themselves an enduring tribute in the finest tomb, not the one in which they lie, but that in which their fame survives in eternal memory to be celebrated forever in word and deed. The whole earth is the tomb of famous men. And not only in their native land does the inscription on a monument commemorate their lives, but in foreign lands, too, there lives on an unwritten memorial engraved, not in stone, but in every mind. So dying this brief, quick, unfelt death uh, brings the Athenians uh, this kind of immortality, this, this um, the, so the empire serves to translate human beings into eternity in the medium of uh, everybody's memory. So everybody remembers these soldiers individually. Um, uh, or do you believe that Heracles believes this? Well, so it's it's not clear. I and mean, one of the things that's amazing about this, this speech is that there are little clues throughout that uh, Pericles is dubious about the ability of glory is glory really going to last? Um, it's you know it's it's clear that the individuals aren't going to be re remembered distinctly, I and mean, that's just kind of obvious. Uh, but you know, Pericles is a smart guy. Um, it's uh, uh, and so he has to register doubt, and he begins the speech by saying, "Well, you know, it's it's risky to have everybody's glory depend on the speeches of a single speaker." Um, we should honor them by deeds, not words. 
um, and kind of the doubt of, of words in relation to deeds is a consistent theme. So um, I think sort of my take on it is that the glory is a lure. Um, it's to elicit the best out of the Athenians and that it's the, the, the virtue story. The virtue story is, is the real story that um, in seeking for glory, the, the best is brought out in people. And so they live the fullest human lives uh, as a result. The problem is that, that, that the, you know, the price of that flourishing is, is risking death. Uh, and so how do you get people to do that? How do you get people to really be on board with that, to live that flourishing life? And so the, the promise of glory is a little, yeah. And Borden, help me with the image here. Is the suggestion that the funeral oration is being offered um, with a pyre and, and the, the bodies of the dead are being like burned together and their ashes are commingled. And so there's this sense of dissolution of individual bodies for a kind of like collective um, Athenian honored dead, yeah. um, which is an interesting juxtaposition with what Pericles is actually saying. And so anyone who was witnessing the funeral oration would have seen, you know, these bodies being, you know, committed um, to um, eternal glory in a kind of corporate way right. and without the mention of individual names, without individual bodies. Um, Are they burned? Are the bodies burned? Yeah. And uh, it, one of the things that's remarkable about, about this, um, I, I didn't read the specific sentence, but in one place he says that they gave their bodies in common uh, and received uh, eternal memory as a result. Um, and there's this, um, the, the Greek adjective koine for common is used, and then the Greek adge uh, adjective idion uh, uh, um, um, for private is used. So in this one sentence, he emphasizes both uh, the private character of their of their bodily sacrifice and the way that that bodily sacrifice transforms them into individual um, uh, glories. So um, he connects their, the, the good of the individual soldier with the memory that, that they receive. So this, this transformation, uh, uh, I think it's great that you bring up um, their, the, kind of the, the, the physical event of the bodies being burned um, and then being reduced to indistinct ashes. It seems like they're, they lose their individuality in this process. And Pericles is claiming that the bodies are given in common, and then out of that, what they draw is um, uh, the eternal memory of, of their virtues and where their souls are liberated by virtue of this. Uh, it doesn't refer to souls, um, but it's it's like fame takes the place of their souls. It's not. It's it's mm -hmm. a, kind of a crappy afterlife in the Greek theological in the in the in, the, in Greek religion. Um, it's not good to be a shade in Hades. They're just like the undead uh, kind of. Uh, bumping around in Hades and, and gibbering, uh, you know, when uh, Odysseus meets Achilles in the in the Odyssey, uh, he meets Achilles in Hades, and Achilles, Achilles is not having a good time. Um, so uh, this isn't really. Um, I mean, Pericles is is strikingly secular. Um, he he. Uh, the only time he ever refers to a god is when he says, "Well, you know, if we run out of money in this war, we can take the the gold off the statue of Athena." <laughs> Use that right, um, uh, but uh, so in this, this seems to be sort of 
a better afterlife. The city actually provides for a better afterlife than uh, you know the universe does because the, the individuals get their 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 individual glory as a result. But presumably, glory only lasts as long as there are human beings to reflect that glory. Yeah, I mean that's what's remarkable because he makes a big deal about how it's natural virtue that's being elicited. Uh, uh, nature in the background through the whole thing, and yet human convention is necessary. Human con- this this afterlife that uh, he offers is is purely conventional, um, and you know there's it, it depends on there always being human beings. It depends on the Athenian Empire uh, always being around, or at least being around long enough and impressively enough so that everybody's always going to remember it. Uh, and neither of those yeah. is really a reasonable expectation. So, so there, there are lots of other things in the, in the funeral oration that we sh- that are worthy of comment. My, I think my favorite is when he says, "Well, some of these people who died, they were actually big losers. <laughs> that, you know, they hadn't done this; they would have done nothing good with their lives whatsoever." Which is, it's not exactly what I want to be said about me in my when I after I'm dead. But um, yeah, they, the best uh, thing they did was die for the city. That's that's that really that proved their virtue. Like, whatever else you have to say about Joe, you know, yeah, okay, Joe was. A shoplifter, and you know he, he beat his wife, but but he died for the city, and uh, then he really came into his own. He's yeah, I mean most of the speech is this very <clears throat> excuse me idealistic account of of what it means to be Athenian, and then uh, at the very end when he's talking about glory, then uh, his account of life in Athens becomes a little more realistic, and yeah, these people aren't so great, and, you know they they face all these vicissitudes in life. But glory releases them from the vicissitudes of life. Yeah, you might be poor uh, as an Athenian, but if you die for Athens, then you ascend into immortality along with uh, everybody else. Yeah, we should. We need to turn to the plague. Yeah. Well, so the the virtues, right, that are that are set up in the funeral oration have a counterpoint in the narrative of the plague. Um, and it, this reminded me a lot of our, you know, contemporary experience of the COVID-19 pandemic um, and the, I think, frequent assessment that these problems um, were were here before the pandemic arrived. And it's the pandemic that sort of laid bare the bones of the body politic. And what I was thinking about, Borden, when you were talking about the virtues, is the way that the plague you know, throws into relief some of the problems with what Pericles is asserting. Um, some of them are tied up in the the tension between the individual and the collective, right? There's a very different kind of funeral pyre narrated in the plague. Um, yeah. People are just sort of running around the city, throwing the bodies onto whatever burning fire they can find. Um, right, it's like a money python. Throw the body on the fire before someone else gets there. It's, right. Yeah, there's something like morbidly comic about it, right? Oh, yeah. 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 So I thought, you know, this is maybe a, a way to pivot, right, is to think about those virtues as, as something the plague um, sort of drums up in ways that don't look so virtuous all of a sudden. Yeah. Uh, it, it, I mean, there's 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 so much to that. There's um, so, for example, this easy minded courage. And I'll, I'll take it from the top uh, uh, of the plague. Can we just read Can we read the, the, the symptoms? Sarah yeah. asked especially to. Yeah, yes. let's do it. Person interested in the history of medicine. I want to yeah. know what this is. For the hypochondriacs out there, we can all compare ourselves. Yeah, well, there's this whole. Do I have this? The yeah. strain of literary criticism where people try to diagnose characters in books 
Um, so, you know, in Dickens, or they try to figure out what Jane Austen died of. I mean, the hypochondriac is, is seeking self-knowledge, right? So it's really only a slight exaggeration of what we do yeah. all the time. Yeah, right. absolutely. It's just the absolute form of, of being an academic. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I mean, there's, there's already tension between the virtue project and the glory project because the glory project requires in a way this sort of sham, this belief in this sham immortality and, and, you know, the central virtue in, in, in Pericles in the funeral oration is really facing the truth. And I think that is in a way the, the keynote and, um, through the whole, uh, the, the the dyad, the funeral oration plague dyad. But in any case, I'll take it from the top. Um, so it comes from Ethiopia, which makes it especially spooky. It's, I mean, they don't know that it comes from, Thucydides says, it is said it came from Ethiopia, um, which is sort of like saying it just came from the ends of the earth, uh, from beyond anything we know. Um, and uh, it, it kills... 25 to 30% of the population. I mean, imagine that. If, if, if COVID were doing that, we would be facing 80 to 100 million dead. And, and I'm not saying this to, to minimize how horrible COVID has been. I mean, a lot of people have died. A lot of people have lost a lot of loved ones. But, uh, I mean, this is, this is mortality on an amazing scale. Um, and it, people die in 79 and 7 to 9 days. So if you catch it, you're going to be dead in a week. Um, so I'm reading uh, um, section 49. Um, that year, as was agreed by all, happened to be unusually free from disease. Sorry, I'm getting my glasses. Um, unusually free from disease so far as regards the other maladies. But if anyone was already ill of any disease, all terminated in this in other cases, from no obvious cause, but suddenly and while in good health, men were seized first with intense heat of the head and redness and inflammation of the eyes and the parts inside the mouth, both the throat and the tongue, immediately became blood red and exhaled an unnatural and fetid breath. In the next, yeah, I always stop on this, like fetid, uh, um, uh, in the next stage, sneezing and hoarseness came on and in a short time, the disorder descended to the chest, attended by severe coughing. And when it settled in the stomach, that was upset, and vomits of bile of every kind named by physicians ensued. And these also attended by great distress. And in most cases, ineffectual retching followed, producing violent convulsions, which sometimes abated directly, sometimes not until long afterwards. Externally, the body was not so very warm to the touch. It was not pale, but reddish, livid, and breaking out in small blisters and ulcers. But internally, it was consumed by such a heat that the patients could not bear to have on them the lightest coverings or linen sheets, but wanted to be quite uncovered and would have liked best to throw themselves into cold water. Indeed, many of those who were not looked after did throw themselves into cisterns, so tormented were they by thirst which could not be quenched. And it was all the same, whether they drank much or little. They were also beset by restlessness and sleeplessness, which never abated. And the body was not wasted while the disease was at its height, but resisted surprisingly the ravages of the, of the disease, so that when the patients died, as most of them did on the seventh or ninth day from the internal heat, they still had some strength left. Or, if they passed the crisis, 
the disease went down into the bowels, producing there a violent ulceration, and at the same time, an acute diarrhea set in, so that, so that in this later stage, most of them perished through weakness caused by it. For the malady, starting from the head where it was first seated, passed down until it spread through the whole body, and if one got over the worst, it seized upon the extremities at least and left its marks there. For it attacked the privates, genitalia, and fingers and toes, and many escaped with loss of these, though some lost their eyes also. In some cases, the sufferer was attacked immediately after recovery by loss of memory, which extended to every object alike, so that they failed to recognize either themselves or their friends. Indeed, the character of the disease proves such that it baffles description, the violence of the attack being in, in each case too great for human nature to endure, while in one way in particular it showed plainly that it was different from any of the familiar diseases, the birds, namely, and the four-footed animals, which usually feed upon human bodies, either would not come near them, though many lay unburied, and died if they tasted of them. The evidence for this is that the birds of this kind became noticeably scarce, and they were no longer to be seen, either about the bodies or anywhere else, while the dogs gave still a better opportunity to observe what happened because they lived with man. Such, in general, was the nature of the disease. For I pass over many of the unusual symptoms since it chanced to affect one man differently as compared to another. And while the plague lasted, there were none of the usual complaints that if they did, it, that it, that if any did occur, it, it ended in this. Um, uh, so, one of the first things he points out after this horrifying catalog of suffering is that when people got sick, they were immediately seized by the worst despondency and despair, which he said was actually the worst part of the disease. Um, and this is an amazing thing. He, he goes through this horrible suffering, and he says, actually, the worst thing about this, this whole episode, the worst suffering, was the despair that people fell into once they realized that they were sick. They saw what was going to happen. And they felt utterly helpless and despairing, and uh, were taken away by the disease all the more quickly as a result of this. And the word that he uses for this despair is athumia. Uh, the word thumas means something like fight. It's your spiritedness. It's your, uh, your willingness to, to assert yourself. And athumia is the complete absence of that, that these people were, were completely deprived of, of the will to go on. Um, and athumia is this mordant pun on rathumia, which was the virtue of easy-minded courage that, that Pericles attributes to the Athenians, that the Athenians are, they, they rush into battle lighthearted, having completely overcome the fear of death. And then so rathumia turns into athumia, this utter despair uh, and, and weakness, um, such that they, they die out more quickly. Um, so, uh, as a result of this, society completely collapses. Um, and I, I want to read this other passage. Unless you... Uh, Wait, I can, before you go on, can, Sarah, yeah. did you want to comment on the symptoms? Do you have yeah. some thought about that? Well, yeah. So, we were, we were talking before we started recording, Borden, about the uh, protean nature of the plague. 
in Athens and that it sort of takes on this series of forms, the last of which being the destruction of memory. And that struck, struck me as a really important counterpoint to the claims that Pericles is making in the yeah. funeral oration, where he's talking about the memorialization of the Athenian dead. Um, and the plague um, is of such a nature that it destroys even the capacity to remember, um, even the capacity to, to have a history. And the sort of protean nature of, of the plague from one that is, is physiological, um, that comes from the ends of the earth and then finally settles in, in history itself or memory itself, obliterating it seems really a suggestive counterpoint to the claims that Pericles is making for Athens in the funeral oration. Yeah, this marvelous, it's a, it's a marvelous observation. Yeah, because they, they, they can't even remember themselves. So this extraordinary claim that Pericles makes that each individual soldier is remembered as an individual, has as its counterpoint, these individuals not even knowing who they themselves are. Uh, they, they lose the ability, in, in a way, they lose their individuality completely. Um, if not being We're person. flowing away in the cosmic diarrhea. Exactly. <laughs> Sarah, wait, wait. We, we, oh, you, that expression was... That's, isn't that that's, the, the final thought here, though? That's, that's going to be my next book, Cosmic Diarrhea. That's You've made my title. Uh, yeah. Um, right. I mean, there's... I think we have a podcast title, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, so uh, so it's it's really uh, suggestive. When so in the the translator who says that the you know the, the plague baffled description in the in the Greek it's it was it was beyond or was stronger than than language or stronger than reason. It, it was krasu uh, tulagu. Uh, um, uh, and uh, the word that he uses is idos. Uh, um, the, the form of the disease was was stronger than than reason. Um, and idos is the word that comes up on Plato. It, it initially meant sort of the look of something or the shape of something. And uh, in, in common usage, it, it turns into sort of the nature of something or the character of something. Um, and the thing that's that characterizes the disease is that. Uh, I know sort of means like the character of something is sort of what it is as a thing. What is its nature as a thing? What is its, its thingness? And the, the character of the plague is to defy thingness. Um, uh, it's, it's so, you know, everybody who gets the disease has individual symptoms that nobody else gets. Um, even the general symptoms uh, of the plague defy any one disease. All pre-existing diseases are folded into it. Um, uh, it. It incorporates, you know, it hits all the different systems of the body. So it seems to incorporate all of these, you know, all other diseases. Um, it, it changes the behavior of, of animals that, that feed on the dead. The birds disappear. Um, uh, it changes the way, it, it, unlike other diseases, it's not specific to a species. It, it, it affects all animals, regardless of, of species, um, the the uh, the survivors lose their their extremities, uh, so it deforms them. Uh, they lose their, their ability to procreate or to produce others of their kind. Um, uh, so um, it it, you know, it it 
destroys their ability to, to recognize themselves. So they become unrecognizable. They become formless um, uh, to themselves. Um, so it's, it's, it, it's part of the spookiness of this because it, it kind of stands, it's unnatural. It doesn't, it's nature is to be, is to have no nature and destroy all natures. Um, it's but, like but a, it does. Important. Some people do survive, right? So Thucydides says that he had the plague and that he survived. So what the? It's not. It's not all chaos all the way down. Or no, it's not well, immediately evident all the way down. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's. Um, I mean, one of its unpredictable features is that some people survive. So we don't know what it's going to do. There are survivors, and he says that the, the people who survived felt momentarily uh, immortal. Uh, like they, they can't be uh, killed by by any disease at any rate because they've they've come through this this sort of this universal disease. Uh, uh, it's a universal biological solvent, but there are there are survivors, and you can't tell who's going to survive or who isn't. Um, uh, so, um, do you want to read the bit about the about the social effects? Yeah. Um, Just time. Yeah, fifty three. Absolutely. So, uh, so the society collapses. Um, uh, in other respects, this is section 53. In other respects, also the plague first introduced into the city a greater lawlessness. For where men hitherto practiced concealment, that they were not acting purely after their pleasure, they now showed a more careless daring. So again, careless daring. Right? The, the virtue that that, Thucydid, that that Pericles ascribes to the Athenians has its inverse in this careless daring. They saw how sudden was the change of fortune in the case both of those who were prosperous and suddenly died, and of those before who before had nothing but a mom, in, in a moment were in possession of the property of the others. So people die, you know, rich people die, and then the poor move into their houses in their stead. And so they resolved. And so they resolved to get out of life the pleasures which could be had speedily and would satisfy their lusts, regarding their bodies and their wealth alike as transitory. And no one was eager to practice self-denial in prospect of what was steamed honor, because everyone thought that it was doubtful whether he would live to attain it. But the pleasure of the moment and whatever was in any way conducive to it came to be regarded as at once honorable and expedient. No fear of gods or law of men restrained. For on the one hand, seeing that all men were perishing alike, they judged that piety and impiety came to the same thing. And on the other, no one expected that he would live to be called to account and pay the penalty of his misdeeds. And nobody, expect, nobody cared about the law because nobody expected to live to see trial. On the contrary, they believed that the penalty already decreed against them and now hanging over their heads was a far heavier one, and that before this fell, it was only reasonable to get some enjoyment out of it. Um, so this is what the economists call shortened time horizon. Exactly. Right. Uh, uh, an extreme future discount. Um, so, uh, there are three, so there, there are three basic pillars to the Greek polis, kinship, piety, and law. And each of these is uh, completely destroyed. Um, kinship is destroyed because uh, people are so exhausted and frightened of the disease that they stop caring for their sick relatives 
and when their sick relatives die, um, uh, they toss them on whatever funeral pyre happens to be burning. The, the dead are, are piling up. They, they, they can't burn them fast enough. And everyone's exhausted, uh, emotionally as well as physically. And so people are tossing the, their dead relatives on whatever pyre happens to be burning, which is a gross impiety. I mean, it's gross. It's also a tremendous impiety. Uh, and it's a, uh, a betrayal of the family bond. So kinship's out the window. Nobody cares about law because nobody thinks they're going to live long enough to see trial. Um, and uh, maybe the, the most interesting thing is, is that the, the sense of what's noble changes as well. Um, uh, so I want to go through this. Um, the holy, there's, there's sort of these four axes of, of evaluation. The just, the noble, the holy, and, and the good. And this is sort of, I'm, I'm drawing from Plato here. Um, but each of these, uh, the, the content changes, but the, the category doesn't. So the good is no longer, you know, being a citizen and, and enjoying what you can get out of this imperial city, um, but it's immediate pleasure. The politics becomes irrelevant because nobody's going to live long enough to engage in, in uh, uh the, the, the political project. Uh, you're going to die in a week. So uh, what the city has to offer is irrelevant. So the good gets narrowed down to immediate pleasure. Um, uh, the holy changes. Uh, the, the gods seem to be out of their minds. They're punishing us. And the, the pious are dying alongside the impious. So uh, propitiating the gods um, uh, becomes pointless. Um, nevertheless, they still believe in the gods. They would rather believe that the gods are capricious and, and sending down this role play problem. Uh, they'd rather believe that, that the gods can't be propitiated, um, that they're just uh, uh, punitive without any rhyme or reason, than believe that the plague is uh, a meaningless mechanism, uh, that they're simply dying for, for no reason. Um, and that is, why do you think that is? Well, I, I, I mean, think, not to. Yeah, I mean, I think it's about meaning. I think that, that. Well, I think two things. I think they would rather think that there's some explanation than no explanation. Uh, so I think they're just looking for an explanation, uh, even if they don't know what the meaning is. The, if the gods are doing it, there's there's some explanation that they that allows their suffering to be something not arbitrary. Um, I also think that they'd rather believe that the gods, that they're gods witnessing their suffering than that they're, they're just lumps of matter being uh, uh, redistributed uh, in the, you know, the cosmic diarrhea of, of matter. They're, they'd rather believe that, that their deaths are touching something eternal, that there's some, uh, somebody's going to remember them, even if it's crazy gods. Um, and so that way their, their deaths, it's, uh, it's less like you're being consigned to oblivion um, if gods are throwing you into or uh, killing you for no reason. At least you'll be remembered by the gods, by the angry gods. Um, uh, let's see. Um, so that's the. Do you, do you think it's possible? Do you think Thucydides accepts you know, cosmic oblivion? Do you think that he uh, think it's possible for a human being to say, I live in a world without meaning? Uh, good question. Um, 
I mean, the, the Thucydides, I mean, the picture that Thucydides paints uh, is one of, I mean, so you've got these two cosmic principles that, that he works through the, the, the history of, of motion and, and rest. Um, and these, uh, uh, he calls the, the war the greatest motion. Athens is the city of motion. Sparta is the city of rest. And so you get this kind of pre-Socratic uh, metaphysics um, where nothing is, uh, that the patterns are going to replay. Um, but nothing that human beings create is going to last. Uh, it's all going to be swept away. Um, uh, there's at the very beginning of the history, uh, in this very eerie passage, he says, and he's going to talk about the war between Athens and Sparta, and he says, you know, in some future time, people are going to look back on the ruins in Greece, and they're going to think Athens is greater than it was because, you know, those vain Athenians, they're always building monuments to themselves, and so it's going to seem very impressive. And this, and and nobody's and people are going to underestimate Sparta because Sparta doesn't do that. They don't they don't put up these monuments, and so the monuments are a really lousy guide to what actually happened and the power that uh, was actually held. And so he, he tells you at the very beginning, all of this is going to be swept away. They're just going to be ruins. Uh, none of these political projects are going to last, and that the ruins themselves don't tell the story. Um, glory of any kind, even if it's marble on the Acropolis, can't capture uh, you know, what, what, what it was really like. Um, and so Thucydides seems to present the view that, uh, yeah, all things human, all things living will be swept into oblivion. Um, there may be patterns. He does talk this very funny thing directly after the passage you just read about how there was an oracle and they, the Athenians interpreted the oracle one time, you know, during regular circumstances, but during the plague, it turned out it meant something else. And, and it's clear Thucydides thinks that people project onto the gods, whatever their current, as we say, current mood is. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, what the gods are become continually reinterpreted in terms of, but he's he's clearly seen through that, right? Like he he's asking us to recognize that for the absurdity that it is. I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. If if uh, there's this this everybody's clinging to this uh, statement from old, um, and there's this word. It can either mean famine or plague. And uh, he says, well, if there's ever a famine, now everybody's reading it as, as a prophecy of, of plague, but if there's ever a famine, they'll read it that way. So they just want there to be some explanation. They want, they want, uh, uh, they want their reality to be stable in some way because it's become maximally unstable. And uh, that's just uh, you know, making things up, reading the tea leaves in a way to... to uh, connect your particular circumstance to something permanent. And especially... Can I, can I ask a question? About, sorry, uh, just to compare this to our own situation, because our reaction to the pandemic seems to me quite different than what Thucydides... In, in fact, it's, so Thucydides presents a kind of liberation that people are now doing in public what they used to do in corners, right? Right. Um, and that means all kinds of shameful, embarrassing things like having sex in the street or something, right? Yeah. That does not seem like our situation. We seem to be more locked down, right? Like both literally, but also um, spiritually or intellectually or something. 
Um, does that seem? And, and this is this is uh, you know there's not a Thucydides question. This is just a if, does that does that sound right to you? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I mean, I mean, they're 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 pretty important differences. Uh, who knows what would happen if if the mortality of of COVID were as bad as as the Athenian plague? If you know twenty five to thirty percent of everyone was dying and dying in a week, then who knows how how uh, how we would respond? There's also the difference that I mean, there was no sort of medical infrastructure. There was no public health, anything of any kind. There weren't even hospitals. Um, you know, private people would hire doctors who were, um, you know, they were doing the best they could, but uh, not really able to do a, a lot. Um, so nobody's going to quarantine in ancient Athens because they don't, they don't really understand contagion uh, that well. We do. And so we're hunkered down. How would we act? If hunkering down, how would we act if, if the lockdowns were useless? You know, how, how would we act if, if self-isolation had no effect um, and instead we just uh, had to face a uh, 25 to 30% death rate? Um, we, might, you know, we might act differently. But in terms of... It's important. They, but yeah. The ancients, when they imagine living outside of the law, they have a much more like you know, sin with gusto kind of view. Right. Whereas our view is you live outside of the law and you're going to sit at home and watch TV right. or something. <laughs> well, but, you know, our dream, a criminal is the couch potato. Right, right. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, part of that I think is because uh, most of us think we're going to live, right? How it, if, if we were really convinced that we were going to die, uh, I don't know that, that we would stay hunkered down. Um, uh, I don't know, are we more timid? I mean, it, you know, it's a, it's a good question uh, whether, you know, uh, uh, to, to what extent our, our response to, to COVID is conditioned by so many things. Um, there's there's the hope of escaping it by hunkering down. Uh, there's a trust in medicine. There's uh, the fact that, you know, we're moderns and modernity is, is all about putting aside those crazy dreams of, of glory. Uh, I mean, modernity begins roughly in, in, you know, in Hobbes because of course everything's about political theory. Uh, but, uh, you know, Hobbes is all about, uh, you know, his big enemy is, is vanity. Uh, it's closely allied with religious fanaticism. So what do we want to get away? We want to get away from these dreams of empire. We want to get away from these religious wars. Let's just focus on keeping the body safe and modern natural science uh, uh, spirals out of that. Um, uh, what, do, what do our politics look like? We're concerned about uh, protecting the body, about uh, security, prosperity. These are all uh, great things, but um, I think it gives us a different attitude about life and death. Um, and it makes us, it, there's a way in which modernity, uh, and I would not trade modernity from antiquity. Uh, I, you know, I want my penicillin and my uh, uh, that sounds like a personal revelation. I mean, in general, uh, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm on board. Uh, I deliver this to you, you know, yeah. I mean, it's like an app. I'm, you know, all in favor of, of modern medicine, but there's a way in which uh, the modern project in, uh, um, is all about length of life rather than quality of life, right? We're clingers. We're valetudinarians. And I think there's a, right. there's a, that, that conditions our response to the pandemic. But, but Borden, I mean, in your reading of Thucydides, I mean, so if if the plague is 
a critique of Pericles, right? So Pericles has this beautiful but very creepy and right. I mean, he's he's talking about conquering the world, yeah. Um, and but but if the plague gives us, you know, Thucydides' true sense of the human condition, right? Then uh, we're in this battle of you know against the the cosmic flux of the world. Um, and so that Thucydides is more similar to the moderns who, you know, we want to have all of our drugs and be able to lock down at home and stay as live, alive as long as we can. Right. Is that, is that a fair reading of your interpretation? Well, I think it's right that Thucydides wants us to see through Pericles's glory project as, as crazy. Uh, uh, and maybe even Pericles knows that it's crazy as you suggested. Um, and I think that affects how we view the virtue project as well. There's something kind of creepy about those imperial virtues uh, and dependent on ever greater conquest. We need more people to fight to show our virtue. Um, uh, I don't, I mean, I, two things. Um, I don't know that the virtues themselves, I think the virtue project were, were meant to be highly dubious about um, the actual virtues of facing death really reconciling ourselves to it. And I mean, think of the central virtue, daring with deliberation, really being clear-eyed, really seeing the, the ugly and fearsome truths uh, about the human condition. I think Thucydides is all on, on board with that, with that aspect of, of the, uh, you know, what Pericles aspires to, if you can separate it from the imperial project, I think uh, uh, Thucydides is on board with that. How that would cash out in terms of uh, how you would live. Um, I don't know that Thucydides, I mean, when he, when he says he's going to record the plague, he doesn't say he's going to record it so that we can do something about it. Um, uh, there's no sense that he imagines modern natural science or modern medicine. Um, the plague is just one of these things that's going to hit. All you can do is, is face it. All you can do is, is, uh, uh, face the oblivion. I don't think he imagines a so in that way it would be different than, than right. I mean, modern medicine promises that we can stay alive for right. longer and longer. Right. Exactly. And therefore, yeah. you know, send, you know, puts off the day in which we really have to confront the fact that, that uh, everything we love is going to fall apart. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a way in which, I mean, you know, returning to this motion and rest theme, um, there's a way in which modernity wants to conquer nature and render it stable and and sort of static. Like we want rest to win. Right? Modernity is all about conquering nature and, and and sort of pinning it down so that we can be safe and and you know live as long as possible and, and sort of maybe imaginarily in, you know to forever. Um, uh, and for Thucydides, I think the, the big lesson is we have to face the flux. We have to face oblivion. Uh, we have to face the fact that everything that comes into being passes away. And there's this question, right? I mean, this is something the pandemic raises, like has, uh, has modernity really conquered nature um, or has it just accelerated viral evolution? Right? I mean, the plague has this uncanny, unnatural aspect to it where it, it destroys every, the, the form of everything. Um, it's, it's like this, potential for chaos latent in, in nature and you know modernity wants doesn't want chaos it, it wants stability um uh, right we want stability um but maybe modernity has actually only accelerated 
the unleashing of, of these terrible possibilities. There's something like early on in, in the, the pandemic, some new version of swine flu, H1N1, was discovered that was even more contagious. Um, <clears throat> the, more, the, the morbidity, the, 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 I don't even know what the term is, but the ability to cause death of, of swine flu was much worse than COVID, but uh, it, it, was, it was not as contagious. And so the, uh, if you had a, a swine flu that was as contagious as COVID, it would be much, much worse. So, you know, there's this question, have concentrations of populations and livestock actually made this kind of thing more uh, likely rather than less? But that's, anyway, that's, that's, so I think there's a limit to how modern uh, Thucydides is. Sarah, do you want to ask the last question? Well, so I've been thinking about a point you made earlier, Borden, about the way the plague um, alters the sense of time. And yeah. we've been talking about this a little bit, I think, but I, I also think our sense in the contemporary moment is not one of necessarily avoiding death, although that's part of it. The other part of it is when will we go back? When will we go back to things being normal? When will we be able to have classes in person again? I think this is a question that a lot of American University students are asking right now as we look ahead to next semester and next year. And I suppose that, you know, one of the things I'm wondering about um, is, is what kinds of returns to normal should we want right now? Or just, just the cities give us a way to think about what a return to normal is like? Um, and what might that mean for our students who are who are listening and wondering about you know what's coming next? Yeah. So um, time. Um, the funeral oration. Uh, uh, one of the things that's interesting about it is it, it sort of frames the individual citizen's life in a temporal project. That you've got the imperial project of the of the city, and then that's going to launch individuals into immortality. And so you've got sort of this this imagined framework of, of eternity uh, and the, the destiny of Athens is, is sort of nested within that and then nested within the, the destiny of Athens you have the individual project uh, of, of each individual citizen and that's kind of that's how we understand the meaning of, of our lives and when the plague destroys the civic project and, and any hope of, of glory um, you get a new time horizon and the new time horizon is the little time you have left the whatever seven to nine days you have, and uh, the Athenians still um, construct some kind of meaning for their lives still within that. They're going to get what they can get, and it's just that they do so uh, uh, because the gods have gone nuts, and so they're all these, uh, um, they, they can reimagine what it means to be noble and just and, and what a good thing is within that new time frame. So the pandemic, uh, I mean, one of the ways that I connected the the in my own mind, um, the team played to the pandemic is that when we're all stuck on lockdown. We don't know what the future holds. Um, we don't know if we're going to be able to go to the supermarket next week or next month. Um, uh, we've been disconnected from our from our habitual time frames, and so um, there's a kind of dislocation. I mean, there's the specter of death, uh, but there's also. Um, a, a, a disconnection from our understanding of how we fit into our futures. And I, I think, I mean, the sense that I get is that there are just, there are a lot of people who are, who have been brought face to face with what their lives mean um, as a result of this. 
if you don't know what your future is, then it's tough to understand what your day means. Um, and not just in a, in a sort of practical sense of, you know, how do I organize my calendar or, you know, what sort, you know, what stock do I invest in if I'm, if I you know, want to return within a certain, you know, whatever period, it's not so much a prudential calculation as it is a, a disorientation around the question of meaning. Um, what does, what does life mean if I don't know, am I going to have a job next year? Um, what's, uh, how do I connect to some larger framework that makes my life make sense? Um, and so I think, uh, first of all, um, I think being, being able to, I mean, these are sort of piddling practical uh, uh, responses to what is a very deep question. Uh, I, I mean, so I, let me step back and say, I think the, the, the most important response to this pandemic is to ask the existential question. This is an opportunity uh, for us to really face the big question, because uh, the question, the, the question of what our lives mean, is is always there. Um, uh, and it's it's like you know, in Hannah and her sisters, when Woody Allen thinks that he's he's dying of cancer, and the doctor says, "No, you idiot, this is this another," and uh, the you know the camera shows him walking out of the doctor's office, and he's overjoyed because he's not going to die of cancer, and he runs down the sidewalk, and he leaps in the air. And then he stops because he realizes, yeah, he's still mortal. He's still going to die at some point. And then there's a very funny sequence of him, like talking to, you know, the Hare Krishnas and the you know, priests and rabbis. Um, but it's an opportunity for us to think about the deepest question um, and live more thoughtful lives afterwards as a result, because the questions are all, always there. And thinking about it actually makes life richer. Um, other than that, I mean, you know, It'll be good when the university is clear about what's happening in, in the spring. It'll be good if, when you know, we know what you know, how the public health system is going to respond to this. Uh, the, the more concreteness uh, we can get, the better. That'll that'll help us to understand uh, uh, you know, how we're going to be spending our time over the next two, four, six, eight, twelve months. Um, all these things will help us to reconnect with some kind of timeline that that. Makes us feel more grounded and concrete, um, but I think there's a way in which we can invest that uh, in hopeful, hopefully increasing concreteness with a better sense of uh, the, the deep questions of life. And that's where we get to liberal education, folks, uh, because that's that's how you do it. That's what liberal education is about. It's reading, reading the uh, really deep accounts of answers to those questions and pursuits of those questions um, and it makes uh, all these individual moments um, resonate uh, uh, with uh, the most important things. Well, Bordens, that's a great place to end. Uh, that's, uh, yeah, the pandemic as, a, as an agent of liberal education, uh, I, I think is, uh, is, is what you're so trying happy. to say. Uh, so happy. Guys, I think we're, I think we're, uh, I, I assume only if we use it correctly though, or if we, you know, actually confront all those questions that, uh, yeah. but the, the questions might actually cause you to freeze up and, and to lock down. Right. Which is oftentimes well, where I feel like we are as yeah. a society. Yeah. I mean, they're, um, right. They're, they're frightening questions, but, but uh, addressing them, uh, I think makes every moment much more, much more vivid. 
and there, there are a variety of potential answers. And in a way, Pericles gives us a model for this inquiry, right? Because he doesn't want to just rest on some conventional answer that people make up. He wants Athenian flourishing to be a flourishing according to nature. Um, and is there a nature? Uh, uh, that's, that's, I think, a, a question that's uh, hovering b behind it. All these questions, um, uh, they're not just blank in the sense that you run up against them and, and you bounce off and you have nothing to, to think about. You're left with, with your athumia, you're left with your despair. We've got uh, a whole lot of rich resources for reflection on what a meaningful and full human life can be. And so if, if we face these questions with companions, I mean, there are a lot of, there are a lot of dead friends on this bookshelf uh, behind me who are still alive in, in very crucial ways. And if you, if you, Pretty important. yeah, well, you know, I've been alone for a while. Uh, are those, uh, are those uh, ashes? No, wait, sorry. <laughs> no, but I mean, he's pointing you know, to books. The audience needs to know that he's pointing to books. He's not pointing to, I'm pointing to books. And so, remains. These, these, yeah, yeah, no, 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 no funeral choir here. Um, uh, no, but I mean, we have the companionship of, of these uh, terrific books, and they offer a, 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 a conversation that is, in, in the most important way, very much alive. And so it uh, gives us solace and uh, interesting possibilities uh, for what a, a, a human life means. And uh, each of these possibilities. Uh, uh, illuminates a, a different aspect of life. And so um, experience just becomes richer in, in having the accompaniment of, of these thinkers and uh, even more the, the accompaniment of these questions. Okay, folks. So, th so this, that was Borden's replacement for the Pericles uh, Glory uh, <laughs> right. project. <laughs> so uh, he's uh, going to stay alive uh, through the books. Um, so we're, we're happy to hear that. Uh, tell us how that works out. Um, Borden, it's been super fun. We really appreciate it. You've, you've got a ton of observations about the, the details of the funeral oration and the plague together. And so, so I, I learned a lot from, from hearing you talk about it. Um, yeah, Borden, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so I think for it, this podcast. This, is, this podcast is marvelous. I've loved the ones that you've done so far. Uh, they've been a rich uh, companion um, uh, through this. So uh, this is just great. Keep doing it. Well, we're hoping to get all your students who love you, Warden, to uh, listen to our podcast. So this was uh, not entirely not entirely non self interested on our part. <laughs> so, uh, oh, and I think Warden brings up the necessity all those all those dead bodies and dead books on the shelf. We need to have an episode on Frankenstein. Yes, correct. We need an episode on Frankenstein. Yes. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Okay, guys, I'm gonna we're gonna call it quits, but uh, we'll we'll see you next time. And Borden, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Borden. Bye, y'all. Bye.